Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. I know this question comes up from time to time, and people ask how to address the issue of the Y-strap. I thought today would be a good time to talk with you about how I address the popularity of this approach, which is not taught in any kind of practice school, yet it harnesses the power of social media to be a general thorn in our side from time to time. Rather than see it as the irritation it can easily become, I'd like to use it as a teaching opportunity to take my patient's understanding of chiropractic to the next level. So let's talk about the Y-strap. A few years ago, I was teaching one of my Gonstead labs and I was making my way around the room. I made my way to a group of three young women who had obviously been discussing something among themselves. I asked, can I help you with anything? They exchanged glances and smiles with one another before one boldly looked at me and asked, what do you think about the Y-strap? I responded, well, seeing as you just started seeing outpatients and will soon be a doctor, I think the more important question is, what do you think about the Y-strap? She stopped smiling and thought for a second before she said, I honestly don't know. To which I replied, I honestly don't think you're the only one. So let's take a moment to talk about it since this is still very much on topic. I then went to the front of the class where there's a large whiteboard and I began to draw. Today I'm gonna to share with you what I shared with them. I know I'm not the only one who gets these questions, but I found that I can use them to deepen my patient's understanding of chiropractic. So I think we need to evaluate something like the Y-strap based on two different criteria. We need to evaluate it based on biomechanics and based on neurology. Let's start by looking at the biomechanics. When I explain this to patients, I try to use simple common language. So I'm gonna to try to do that now as well. The important joint that we need to talk about is the atlanto-occipital joint. I usually just tell patients it's where your skull meets your spine, but it's the anatomy of the joint that they need to understand. For the students, I drew it on the whiteboard. For my patients, I usually use the spine model so they can see it. I think the visual aspect of this is important for them to see it if they're gonna really understand it. I then point out the occipital condyle so they can see how it's round and how it neatly fits into the concave surface on the lateral mass of the atlas. Once they can see it, I tell them the proper position for the condyle is to be sitting as low on that concave surface as possible. Now, a lot of my patients are engineers. In fact, most of my patients are engineers and some of them are mechanical engineers. So I usually don't have to explain this very far before they go, well, yeah, obviously. The lowest possible position is the only correct position for the condyle. When the joint misaligns, it either goes forward and up or backward and up, but it always goes up when it misaligns. I reiterate this point by pointing out that when we adjust it, we always adjust it down into the joint. In the case of the students, I reminded them of how they've been taught to adjust the occiput. It's always down into the joint. Therefore, if down is good and every misalignment is up, why in the world would I want to pull up on that joint? That's why I call it the Y joint, W-H-Y. It isn't a rhetorical question, and I'm not being sarcastic. I'm genuinely looking for a good reason to pull up on a joint that only works correctly when it's sitting low in the joint. Every patient I have ever explained this to has said that they can't think of a reason why that would be a good idea. So I conclude by telling them, that's why the Y-strap is not taught in any chiropractic school. I usually tell them, that when you pull up on the skull, the best you can hope for 
is that it goes straight up and straight back down. That's still not great, but it's the best possible scenario. It's far more likely when it goes up, it will also go forward or backward and become stuck. Something we'd have to admit is a chirogenic subluxation. So far, I've never explained this to a patient that they haven't decided on their own that they would never want to have that done to their spine. I then tell them, we haven't even talked about the neurology side yet. While joints can be distracted and compressed, not every structure in the upper neck is elastic or tolerant of such forces. Primarily, the spinal cord and brain stem. According to the research, the primary mechanism of injury affecting the spinal cord following distraction is the result of ischemia due to vascular compromise. That means the full extent of the injury won't be immediate, but it will occur later as the full consequences of ischemia finally take their toll. A study by Bo Hahn et al. looked at an experimental model in pigs to assess distraction spinal cord injury, or DSCI for short. In addition to ischemia, they also looked at inflammatory cytokines and apoptosis. Quote, Fast blue staining revealed that spinal cord distraction destroyed the normal structure of spinal cord tissues and nerve fiber tracts, exacerbating inflammatory cell infiltration, hyperemia, and edema, end quote. One thing that I got from this study is that the mechanisms that lead to spinal cord injury following cervical distraction injury are far more complicated than we might be inclined to believe. Let me just read this excerpt from the conclusion, and you'll see what I mean. Quote, the neuroinflammation response after distraction spinal cord injury might be caused by the activation of microglia and astrocytes, which play a pivotal role in secondary injury after DSCI. The overexpression of interleukin 1b, interleukin 6, and tumor necrosis factor alpha after DSCI may intensify the processes of inflammation and neurodegeneration. Moreover, the function and structure of impaired neurons and oligodendrocytes may be mediated by P53 mediated BCL2, BAX, caspase 3 signaling pathway of apoptosis after DSCI. End quote. See what I mean? Complicated. What you see is a mechanism of cytokines causing neurodegeneration and apoptosis leading to the destruction of neural cells of the spinal cord as a result of the distraction injury. In the worst possible scenario, we run into the issue of internal decapitation. Internal decapitation is also known as atlanto-occipital dislocation. This particular injury requires multiple ligament failure before it's even possible. However, the catch is that these ligaments are oriented in the vertical position to resist vertical forces, particularly distraction. If the distraction forces are great enough, the ligaments can be severed, resulting in internal decapitation. As I look through the literature, it seems the most likely mechanism for this to happen is a motor vehicle accident. However, it is still rare. So the obvious question, and the one relevant to our discussion, is how much force is required to create internal decapitation? I've had trouble finding any adult studies to address this issue. However, there are some infant studies looking at birth trauma that, are, that do address the issue. Before we go there, I'd like to deviate for just a moment to tell you that as I was investigating this topic, I found something related that was new to me. It was the concept of diaphragmatic detachment as a result of distraction injury. When they studied these in adults for prevalence, they found roughly 7% of autopsies demonstrated diaphragmatic detachment 
which is much greater than the number diagnosed and reported before death. When learning about this, my mind immediately reflected on the role the diaphragm plays in regulating the function of the vagus nerve, and therefore, parasympathetic activity. I can't say to what extent, but diaphragmatic detachment is obviously going to have a negative effect in this regard on the autonomic nervous system. Another little thing that I found was a study demonstrating that all cervical rotation creates lateral translation. It's the translational forces that are damaging to the posterior ligaments as well as the neural structures. That means that the more rotation that's created in search of an end range of motion, the greater the lateral translation, and therefore, the greater the damage that's created anatomically. I don't see how that could be considered a correction of anything, but somehow it often is. Getting back to the topic of decapitation, my question was, what is the lower limit of force required to decapitate an adult? It appears the answer to that question is around 4,000 newtons. That force of 4,000 newtons is equal to about 900 pounds of static weight, or the approximate weight of a moose. But we aren't talking about static weight, we're talking about a focused distractionary force. I found a study slash autopsy of a motorcycle accident involving complete decapitation. The motorcycle was traveling at 133 kilometers per hour, or roughly 82 miles per hour. To complete this analysis, we would need to know how much force is generated by the Y-strap. Unfortunately, that I cannot tell you, as it's never been done, to the best of my ability to discover. I found numerous Y-strap sites stating that there's no evidence it will damage the spine. But then again, there's no evidence that it's not damaging to the spine either. I find no evidence that the studies have ever been done to judge either way. So there's that intellectual dishonesty thing again. Without any studies, we are left to make assumptions based on what we do know. However, my preferred approach is to simply ask the question, why? It's my firm belief that anytime you introduce a force into the spine, you should be able to answer the question, what do you intend to accomplish? If you cannot answer that question, then you should not proceed. I would say the same is true for any surgery or before a dentist would pick up a drill. You must have a goal in mind and know what you intend to accomplish before you proceed. I found that as I present this information to patients, they almost always make the right decision, but then they will frequently say, but it just looks like it would feel so good. My spine feels like it's compressed. In fact, the most common reason given for using the Y-strap is that it creates spinal decompression. So let's take some time to talk about this concept of spinal compression and decompression. The basic concept, although not well elucidated, is that the vertebra are compressing the spinal discs leading to compression of the spinal cord itself. It's then believed that distraction will relieve this compression of the disc and subsequently relieve the neurological symptoms of compression of the spinal cord. My first question is, how would this happen? Did your head suddenly become much heavier? Not likely. So it must be a failure of the disc. If the disc is so damaged that it cannot support the weight of the head, then how do you know it can handle the forces of distraction without being injured further? When we look at the research, it becomes immediately obvious where the misconception arises. Spinal compression, as far as the research shows, is the product of horizontal forces, not vertical ones. Retrolisthesis disc and bone fragments are the most common causes. The problem is that spinal cord compression and disc compression are terms that are often used interchangeably. As I stated a moment ago, spinal cord compression is the result of horizontal forces and disc compression, which is thought to be the product of vertical forces, is actually poorly substantiated in the literature. 
So let's talk about what's happening here. A 2014 study by Kelly R. Wade et al. and published in Spine looked at this very issue and offers us some insight. Intervertebral discs were loaded to the point of failure in both the neutral position and the flex position. In the neutral position, failure occurred at the point that the vertebral end plate fractured. This shows us that under compression, the disc is not the weak link and not something that would become compressed under the weight of the body. The end plate is the weak link, not the disc. I cannot stress that enough as the research has shown this to be true time and time again. However, as we follow the study, they then recreated the experiment using 10 degrees of flexion. When flexion is introduced, the mechanics of failure are entirely different. 50% of the spines loaded in flexion experienced failure. Failure could be annular failure, annulus end plate failure, facet fracture, or end plate fracture. Now here's the key statement from the study. The force necessary to produce failure in the flex spine was 18% lower than in the neutral spine. As a reminder, flexion involves x-axis rotation combined with z-axis translation. These are both horizontal forces, which renders the spine vulnerable to vertical forces. So ask yourself, if you then apply a vertical force, namely distraction or positive y translation, is that going to solve the problem? In this scenario, the vertical forces are merely the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. It's the horizontal forces that make the disc vulnerable. Vertical forces may temporarily relieve some of the negative sensation associated with this type of injury, but they're not addressing the underlying cause. We also know that the compressed appearance of the disc on x-ray is the result of breakdown caused primarily by the lack of motion, not due to excessive weight or compression as we might imagine it. Once again, let me take a little rabbit trail here for just a second. Another study I fell upon talked about cervical spondylolisthesis in the elderly. In fact, they looked at both anterolisthesis and posterolisthesis or retrolisthesis, and they found that both had a high prevalence in the elderly as a result of degenerative changes. Consequently, they also found hypermobility of the upper cervical region as a direct consequence of the lower cervical degeneration. I would caution greatly against applying distraction forces to elderly patients for exactly that reason. That was a 2007 study by Kawasaki et al. If we get back to the idea that patients often say that the Y-strap looks like it would feel good because of the compression they feel, we can discuss the mechanism of what is producing this perception of increased weight or compression. Have you ever adjusted a patient C7 or T1 and had them respond by saying that it made their head feel so light? That's the exact opposite of what makes them feel like their head is heavy. What's happening here is that when subluxation takes place, we experience a change in how we bear weight on the vertebra, while simultaneously bearing weight on the injured disc. The body must adapt to this change. The adaptation is signaled by muscle spindles and Golgi tendon organs in the tendon that sense the stretch and tension created in the muscles. They synapse with the spinal cord, which triggers a reflex to tighten the muscle or contract the muscle. This limits motion to prevent further damage and it creates stabilization to support the damaged joint. When vertically oriented muscles contract and hold their contraction, they create a force oriented in the same line as gravity and that creates the sensation of an increase in weight. The patient feels as though stretching these muscles will provide relief from the sensation. 
Do you know what happens when you stretch a muscle that is in chronic neurological contraction as a self-defense mechanism? Well, I can tell you, it doesn't stretch very effectively. And if you do get it to stretch, you will often pay the price for your transgression. The solution is not to stretch the muscle. The solution, as always, is to correct the disc injury that the body is trying to protect. That injury is oriented in a horizontal direction, not a vertical one, which necessitates a horizontal correction and not a vertical one. Well, I hope you found this discussion helpful, both for solidifying your own thoughts and for communicating these ideas to patients. These, there are often concepts in chiropractic that gain popularity and traction, even though there's little to no science to support them. I don't think it's mean or cruel to point this out. One thing I know of professions like ours is that if we don't police ourselves, someone on the outside will come in and do it for us. I want to use the popularity of the Y-strap to increase the value my patients place on their necks, their joints, and their nervous systems. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.